This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Saturday, August 5th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Now that the Supreme Court has tossed President Biden's student debt bailout plans, the president appears to want another bite at the apple. What does that look like, and what authority is the president hanging his hat on for this round? Cato's Neil McCluskey explains. Well, so the first thing probably worth uh, setting up to go even further back is, even before the Biden administration decided they were going to try and do this mass student debt cancellation, they were doing everything they thought they could in dribs and drabs to cancel student debt. So not saying we'll just do it blanket like they eventually proposed, but they've been planning to, to you know, sort of keep chipping away at this for a long time. So then they went, though, they were going to go for the home run with the uh, proposal to give mass forgiveness is up to $20,000 for just about everyone. Um, I actually think the Biden administration pie knew there was a pretty good chance they were going to lose in court, which is why they'd been pursuing other avenues this whole time. Um, and they did, of course, lose in court where they said, that, hey, the executive doesn't have the authority to just turn $400 billion of grants into loans. So they were already, I mean, sorry, turn. $400 billion of loans into grants. Um, it would be nice if maybe if we got repaid for some grants. But anyway, so uh, making it much more expensive for the taxpayer. Uh, but they were, again, talking about, even as this was happening, making other changes to student loan repayment, no matter what happened in court. And the big one is that they're going to change through regulation, or so they hope, Um how you repay income-driven repayment. And income-driven repayment means basically, hey, we look at your income and decide there's a certain amount of it that you wouldn't be able to afford to repay your student loans. And currently, if you want an income-driven repayment, what they say is, look, 150% of poverty and below, we can't touch. And everything after that is around uh, 10 to 15% uh, of that income you would have to, you know, repay your debts. And they're saying, well, no, we're not going to do that anymore. Now what we're going to say is everything 225% of the poverty line and below, you don't have to pay, and you'd only have to pay 5% after that. And that would remove a whole lot of income that would have had to have been repaid. And they're going to say they're going to do this just by regulation, by rewriting regulation. They also just, uh, boy, it was uh, a week or two after the Supreme Court decision came out, they said, oh, also we're going to forgive $39 billion of debt for people who may or may not actually be eligible. So this gets a little dicier. The $39 billion, some of it is people who probably should have had Payments counted toward forgiveness under income-driven repayment, but the Department of Education is so incompetent they haven't kept proper records. The GAO documented this about a year and a half ago. So that's actually legitimate. But then they're saying it, but there are also a whole lot of people who probably repaid under other plans that, well, they probably should have been able to repay, although technically under the law they couldn't. And we're just going to change that too. So there's a whole bunch of squirrely stuff. And if you take that $39 billion and you add it to the estimates of their changes for income-driven repayment, which some put it about costing taxpayers around $475 billion over 10 years, you're actually beyond the amount it was going to cost for the mass cancellation the Supreme Court struck down. 
it it would make sense if uh, student debt cancellation, if we were to prioritize individuals for that cancellation, we would prioritize the individuals who are uh, least well off. Yes. And in a way, I suppose income-driven repayment does that because the idea is, well, it's for people who have relatively low incomes, but they are changing the targeting of that. They're making it much less targeted by saying, well, we're going to go from 150% of poverty that you don't get considered to have to repay now to 225%, and we're making it a smaller percent of what's left over you have to pay. They're changing the targeting. And we have to remember that the people who struggle the most to repay their debt tend to actually be people with the lowest debt. These are tend to be people who entered college and were not really prepared to complete it, and they drop out. And so if we're going to have assistance, it should be really very specifically targeted toward those people. Uh, but we should also remember that income-driven repayment alone is supposed to be a way to help people who are struggling with repayment. The whole idea is you pay a percentage of your income, so when your income isn't high, you're not paying very much. And then 20 to 25 years later, if you've been making on-time repayments under income-driven repayment, and you still haven't paid it off, then it's already forgiven. So the whole idea of this program before these changes was to help people who were struggling. There's no reason that we should make that much more generous. And I should also note that they have another provision that after 10 years, if you know you took out $12,000 or less after 10 years, if you haven't repaid it, it's all forgiven, whatever's left. And for every additional year, it's $1,000 more. So, you know, if it's 13000 you haven't paid it off in 11 years, you get the remainder of that forgiven. And that's brand new and seems to come out of nowhere. There's nowhere in the law that authorizes it, just like there's nowhere in the law that says, hey, you could just reset interest rates and the, the uh, income threshold for income-driven repayment. If we understand college to be... Well, I mean, there are different ways of looking at what college actually is. For a lot of people, it's a consumption good, right? That is, I'm going to get a degree in this because I like this, not because I want to use this to enhance my income down the road. But for a, you know, a large fraction of the college uh, attending population, it is to gain skills and expertise that will assist them in their later years. Sometimes those invest investments don't pay off. Yeah. Well, it's like, uh, I'm going to get this number close. It's probably not exactly right. But there was recently a poll that asked people what they expect to get out of college. And it's uh, 90% or more, I think, but around 90% say, well, I go to college because I want to get a good job. Regardless of what you study, the expectation is you'll get a good job. And it's worth noting that on average, the you make a whole lot more money over your lifetime if you get a degree than if you don't. So the average person with a bachelor's degree and nothing higher, so who tops out their education with a bachelor's degree, makes about $1.1 to $1.2 million more dollars over the lifetime than somebody who stops out at a high school diploma. If you go and you get a professional degree like an MBA, you go to law school, you go to medical school, you're going to make about $3.1 million more over your lifetime. So people who go into this, yes, are typically looking for a big financial payoff over a lifetime, and they typically get it. But there are some times that people 
don't make a great decision. And one of the problems we have is that the federal government will give you money no matter where you want to study, no matter what you want to study, no matter what essentially your academic background is. And we would be much better off if one, if the federal government is going to give loans, if they did much more rigorous assessment of whether somebody is likely to complete a program and whether they're likely to complete a program that has some demand in the labor market. Right now, they don't do that. Um, and we'd even be even better off if they got out of student lending um, because the cheap, you know, on the taxpayer lender, meaning politicians, the lenders using someone else's money, really don't have any risk involved. So they don't have a uh, a very strong incentive to make sure they're not wasting money. Um, we'd be much better off if these programs didn't exist. And it's also worth noting that the more money we put into college and we say, go get a degree, the more we have credential inflation, where you increasingly have jobs that haven't changed what you need to know or be able to do, but employers increasingly say, well, we also want a degree. Why? Well, because they're out there and we can ask for them. And if we keep plowing money into it, we're just making it harder for people who'd like to enter the labor market right away and not spend four to six years in college and who would like to be able to enter efficiently, maybe learn your skills on the job, which they could do, actually get those skills. But now the employer is saying, well, we're going to demand a degree. And the something of an irony of what the Biden administration is doing is it's happening at the same time, we see employers, including state governments, saying, we're going to stop requiring degrees for many jobs where we realize they're not necessary. Neil McCluskey directs the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.